Welcome to Daring Daring Two, a podcast that finds out how CEOs and entrepreneurs navigate today's business world. The conventions they're breaking, the challenges they've faced, and the decisions that they've made. And lastly, just what makes them different. Well, if you're sitting at home this afternoon and you are wondering what to do, I'm glad you've tuned into today's podcast because joining me today, not we may be touching on the coronavirus, but maybe not in a way that you've heard before. So do listen in. Joining me is Shazia Aguinar. She's the CEO of Neuro Insight. Um, Shazia, you have a background that's in marketing, but we're going to talk about marketing from a very different perspective. You know, highly acclaimed. Um, I'm also both uh, honoured to be interviewing you because you are also passionate about um, a particular charity in the UK, which I also um, have experienced myself, so of, around endometriosis. So I am, you know, it heartens me to see that there are women out there that speak about it because it is um, a condition that affects many, many women around the world. And as somebody that had suffered from it in the past, um, it was um, both heartwarming and kind of put me in my place that maybe I should have been doing more um, in those days to sort of spread the the news. But let's move on because let's talk about a really important topic, which is what neuroscience is about. I mean, your career has been in marketing. You've worked for some of the big players um, in in the industry, P&G and and others, obviously. um, But you became CEO about a year ago. So we're going to talk about that journey a little bit. But I want to start off with what you guys actually do, which I am really curious about. And you use a phrase about bringing the subconscious to the conscious and neuromarketing. Now, I don't know. I've been around the block a bit, right? And I've heard of neuroscience, but neuromarketing, is that just a buzzword? <laughs> I get asked that quite a lot. Do Thanks you? so much for having me. Um, firstly, to everyone listening, I hope you're all safe and well in this surreal moment in human history. Um, and hopefully we can sort of change the subject a bit by talking about, about neuroscience and neuromarketing. But yeah, this is a, it's a fascinating space. It's a space that's kind of come about, I'd say come to life maybe over the last decade or so. Um, and you know, I, I mean, I got into this through a series of accidents and curiosity and passion, but neuromarketing's just that level up of understanding the human truth. You know, we talk about making the subconscious conscious because What we're actually doing is we're tapping into the seat of all of our decision making, which is the brain. Um, There are many, many research techniques that exist out there in the marketing space. Um, Lots of qualitative, quantitative research techniques. And then you move into the space of biometrics where you have things like eye tracking and facial coding. And they allow you to understand physiological responses to um, things that are happening to people. Um, but actually the, the seat of all of it is in the brain. And that's what neuromarketing is about. It's about understanding your subconscious mind and getting real insight. So, um, the business that, um, that I run, um, is called NeuroInsight and we have a proprietary technology called steady state topography or SST for short, because as you said, I'm an ex PNGO, which means I love an acronym and SST is an amazing tech that was created by a neuroscience professor. So it's rooted very much in the science, but we've brought it to the commercial world in order to allow us to generate kind of insights for the marketing space. And tell us a little bit about that, because, you know, in the world where today we are crowded with competitors, companies are struggling to figure out how to differentiate themselves. Technology is changing how business is done in so many different levels. As an yeah. individual, we have access to so much information and we are so 
um, I think, you know, attuned now to both information and sort of personalization, right? We want things the way we want them, how we want them. Um, you guys have an interesting take on how you're using SST to sort of look at that and helping companies to really figure out how to connect to that to consumers like yourself, like me and you, when we look at, you yeah. know, do we buy something? Don't we buy something? We've seen, you know, I can recall a couple of years ago when, when the Volkswagen issue hit, you know, they, their brand reputation, which was, you know, people loved them and looked at their marketing because they, they were a company you could trust. And then, you know, crash and burn, they have an emissions issue and nobody wants to buy their product anymore, right? They only want to drive a Volkswagen yeah. car. How does SST work? I mean, what does it actually do? So SST measures electrical activity in the brain. So our brains are incredibly busy. And you gave a really interesting example there because you recalled something that clearly was encoded into your memory. And that's kind of key to what we look at. Now, with, with measuring electrical activity in the brain, there are other things that people, people do sometimes use. So things like EEG, the way SST works, which is different is, you know, people wear a headset. So they've got a cap on their heads with little sensors on them. And those little felt sensors, they are kind of uh, spaced on your brain um, in various positions. Now, our brains are really specialized. So the way it works is different areas of the brain are responsible for different cognitive functions. And we, by using SST, can measure the activity in all those different regions of the brain. Now, they also do wear a visor. This is what makes SST so unique. So they wear a visor, which you can see straight through, but there's a a flickering light in the periphery of the vision that sets a, a stimulus signal in the brain. And we track the electrical activity of all those different regions versus that signal. So you strip away all the noise because our brains are very noisy. They have a lot going on. They work at lots of different frequencies, which is why SST is a really robust way because of that stimulus signal to allow us to measure what's going on. And as I said, your example, you recalled something which was embedded in memory. Now, with SST for marketers or, you know, brands that are trying to get their message across and trying to sell some magic and, and a dream to their, to their consumers. What's really critical is that their brand and that call to action and that message is encoded into their memory, but for the long term. So that's what we're measuring. It's one of the things that we're measuring. We're measuring what goes into your memory center. And we look at that both from the left and right side of the brain. So our left brain is where it's where our speech capability develops. So it's where we process a lot of our very granular, detailed information, lots of detailed words and phrases. And then the right side is responsible for processing that more bigger picture, overall feel of something, that holistic processing. And what we know from the academic work that's been done is that memory, long-term memory, it correlates to future decision-making, action and behaviour change. So it's really important for brands to understand what goes in. Now, there are ways you can do kind of qualitative research or quantitative where you're asking people questions, but we're reliant then on a human being's ability to articulate what they think and feel. And we're kind of limited from that point of view, you know. About 90% of our decisions are made in our subconscious. Okay, I, so I saw that. I saw that. Like 95% yeah. of yeah. our decisions are made by the subconscious. So I'm like, I'm going to take that fact. I'm going to yeah. take that home to my <laughs> husband and say, when I'm making a decision, don't when you want to make a decision, you say it's based on fact. I now have some proof that actually it's yeah. not. So don't try and pull that one <laughs> over me. But that just but blew yeah, but, me away. Yeah. That blew me away. Yeah. 
it's so it's so fascinating because there's so much stuff going on in there that we don't even know and and equally we aren't able to know or able to articulate and so being able to measure the subconscious gives a layer of insight you just can't get in other ways now it's also it's great knowing what goes into your memory that's super important the so what every good researcher is looking for the so what the why behind everything so we also look at areas of the brain that are responsible for emotion so certain emotional responses that we have um, and that's also a big part of what we do and, and by measuring all of those areas we're able to build a really true picture of how somebody feels and thinks about something we can quantify it um quantifying emotion is it seems like a slightly out there concept but this is what this technology allows us to do. It's now, you guys magic. did, did like, you know, I, I read that you guys were involved in the Super Bowl in 2019 and uh, um, living in the US right now, obviously, like the Super Bowl resonates to a lot of my readers. But you guys were responsible in helping some of the companies, I think it was either seven or nine of the companies out of the 55, put together their adverts as a company, sort of like trying to appeal and connect um, to those adverts that come on, which is what we really watch the Super Bowl for. At least that's what yeah. I watch the Super Bowl for. And don't tell everybody else, but that's what I watch it for, for those <laughs> adverts. Um, because they are, you know, and like now you're making me think of like what's encoded in my brain. And I always remember the e-trade adverts from a few years right. back where they would have the little kid that would be like, you know, making deals and stuff like that. That was obviously, as you call it now, encoded in my brain. But how do you get companies to sort of buy into this idea of yeah. neuroscience? Because like we've been out doing marketing for years, right? And most people are like, oh, yeah. let's go get a focus group together. Let's go yeah. ask people what they think. Let's like do little surveys at the end of it. Let's, you know, th- this is kind of yeah. like people go, this is, oh, this is a bit like fuzzy. This is a bit like, oh, <laughs> yeah. we, you know, oh, it's a bit too much for us. So how are you convincing companies that this is the, you know, this is real, this, this is brings about results yeah I mean that's a great question I um I myself was client side for a long time I sort of spent 12 years client side part of that P&G and then I was um, working at a hairstyling brand after that and, and it's a very you know, well-known hairstyling brand yeah yeah they're great <laughs> still have some of those very brand loyal um but you know the the, the thing that I found being both client and agency side is marketers have been asking the same questions for many, many years, right? And there's a reason that they are still asking those questions. It's because those methodologies that exist, whilst they definitely have their place, they are not giving enough of an answer. And the reason is going back to that stat, so much of our decision-making happens in the subconscious. If you can't tap into it, you can't get the answers that you need. And I think that now we're in an interesting space because people are becoming a lot more open to innovation. But they are also still quite risk averse. And we're at a tipping point, you know, where people are, a lot of businesses are looking to do something a little bit wacky, do something a bit more kind of forward thinking. But at the same time, they like to wrap themselves in the safety blanket of, you know, can I have that consumer verbatim that I can go to my key stakeholders with? Or can I have that one statistic that's a percentage that's really easily digestible? Um, And, you know, then the they're seeing that there's value in thinking outside. So a lot of the conversations that I have, I'll often just, you know, talk to my clients about, you know, why is it that the questions have not been answered? And the reason is because there's no way of answering them unless you tap into the subconscious. 
It's a fascinating sort of application that as like, you know, as you're talking and I think about the applications that that could have beyond sort of like the consumer area, you know, the, the, you, I was smiling as you were saying, you know, why is it that marketeers have been asking the same questions for the last X number of years and they, you know, they're, they're getting the same results. It's, you know, I, I say the same thing around when I talk to CEOs and around talent and talent development. It's like, yeah. why is it? It's like number three or like, you know, it's in the top three of CEO concerns every year. And yet, yeah. you know, as, as functions like HR and as leadership, we have not solved that issue uh, because we're using the yeah. same stuff that we've always used and we know it doesn't work, but we still keep doing it, right? So Yeah, it, that one's a really fascinating space. I mean, there's there's hundreds of psychometric tests, right, that can help us to segment people. There are lots of training programs that exist when it comes to people. I mean, the people side of my job is actually my favourite part of my job. Um, I've always really enjoyed that and also the work that I do with Endometriosis UK. It's about understanding and enabling humans to grow and thrive. Um, and so I, I mean, I could talk about that for days. Just sort of. Do you the, think uh, that it could the apply then? Do you, do you see? Do you see what you're doing in the marketing space as a company, as a CEO? And do you see that? being applicable across other areas i mean obviously if we're tapping into the subconscious um which is basically really the conscious yeah. it is actually really the conscious right if it's 95 percent of our decisions are coming well, from yeah, that to some I mean, extent everything that yeah so absolutely i definitely think it it fits in with other areas i mean what where we're applying it at the moment is in the very commercial space so we look at brand advertising, we look at shopper journey, we look at context effects of different types of media. But there is a lot more room for this space to grow, particularly SST, to have a role to play in this arena. I mean, we have um, sort of specific things around kind of sample sizes that we use. So we tend to do a lot less B2B work. Uh We tend to work with more B2C brands. But I mean, that's something as a business that, you know, we are looking into because, I mean, I for one think it would be incredible if we could help to improve you know working relationships and uh, you know anything in in the space of training and talent by using this kind of insight I mean it would just be so powerful I've got goosebumps as you're talking about it making me think about where (laughs) that could go I really have Uh, so let's look on the flip side right so here I am a listener listening to this going like for those of us that are kind of like intrigued by all of this and think it's fascinating, we're going like, wow, we want to hear more. But then, you know, the other side, let's play the other side a little bit. You know, there are people there sitting there like, how dare you think about like yeah. trying to get into my brain? Like, am I not like, or is my space not my privacy, my space, my data not already like shared enough around the world yeah. that we live in today? Yeah. How do you counteract that argument, oh, right? Yeah. Because it's, I mean, it's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah, it is a tough one. But, you know, ultimately, I think the key to everything is consent. Yeah. And, you know, in every in every way. Um, and I think that where there's been a lot of discussion around people's data and what their data is being used for, I think, you know, the most critical thing any business can do in this space is be transparent. I mean, we've all we all know what happened with the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Yeah. And anybody mm-hmm. who works in the research space we know that data is such a powerful commodity and humans can either use it for good or use it for evil. So as a business, NeuroInsight, we have an ethical policy. So there are some categories that we refuse to work with. Mm -hmm. So our ethical policy states, we don't work with tobacco, gambling, or kind of payday loans, Mm -hmm. anything that in its intended usage could cause harm. But when it comes to other 
wise when people are saying, oh, but you're getting inside my head, you're using my information to tailor something. That's what any kind of research does. You know, any, if you ask people to fill in a survey, if you ask them to come to a focus group, you're using their words to help develop something. And the thing is, most brands, you know, the likes of P&G or Unilever, you know, they're creating products that change our lives for the better. Mm-hmm. And they're the brands that we work with, you know, the ones that are changing lives to improve them. And so helping them to be able to create the right kind of communication for those products that will help change people's lives for the better. You know, arguably, that's what marketing has been forever. And this is just another level of getting to the truth behind how you do that. So how quickly do you think it'll get it'll take off? I mean, you know, we've seen the neuroscience sort of field um, expand, neuromarketing has expanded, but it hasn't really taken off that that much yet, right? There are, you know, I think some of your research or the research that's out there says that, it, that the, the sort of projections, I guess, are up in 2026, 2026 or around like a, a compound yeah. growth of 12% or something like that. So, I mean, it looks like it could grow massively. How, yeah. how convinced are you that that's true, that people will shift away from that known safe environment and actually try to um, build... I guess, strategies, but also like connect to people because this is about connection, right? What I took yeah. away from reading about the company and what you guys do is like, this is all about connections. Yeah, I mean, I, I really, if you'd have asked me this two months ago, I would have said it's expanding and it will continue to expand. There will be a soft change. So the data that exists People will need soft changes from that into this new world of using neuro data. The outputs are different, so they need to be able to understand how it looks. So it will happen. It will be slower. I actually think given the way that the world is going right now, mm-hmm. when we come out of the back of the COVID-19 situation, the world will have changed. Marketers will be asking questions in a slightly different way. And I think that will actually enhance and, and sort of speed up the, the progress that neuro is making. because asking people how they think or feel i'm not sure that we're going to get the right answers i remember when i was at i was at png and i also recorded a podcast about two months ago about sound and music because we've done a lot of work on looking at um how humans are very visually dominant but how sound and music can impact our brains Uh one of the things i've always said is that people find it very difficult In, in qualitative research i've heard them say the two things that they find difficult to explain their feelings around our smell and music. There are some things that we just can't explain. How interesting. And coming out of a crisis yeah. or things that are incredibly emotive, being able to articulate those feelings and being able to articulate why behaviours have changed. And also we are going to be coming out of this as more values-driven mm-hmm. brand buyers, right? And shoppers. Yes. And I definitely think, that being able to get the answers out of people with the limitations that we have on you know, our ability to explain means that these techniques will become even more critical. Well, I have to concur with you on that one. I, I also um, have a belief that, that, you know, that we are going to see differences when the, the idea of, sort yeah. of like back to normal is going to look very different. And the winners and the losers from a business perspective of the, of, uh, coming out of you know, COVID-19 are going to be those that have really like fallen back on those values, those principles, those purpose, and and how they've actually handled this sort of situation. Because I think you're going to start to sort of, 
I think it's going to be really interesting what gets revealed, right, about how companies sure. really operate because you are, we are now operating in ways we've never really operated on the scale that we're operating right now. Oh, but, uh, for sure. But, you know, you, you made the point about if I'd asked you two months ago, you would have said, you know, one answer and now you're saying another. What, what yeah. do you think that people will, what will change in marketing? What will marketeers or um, organizations be asking? Because nobody, nobody wants to know. I think people are tired of being asked, like, how are you feeling about this, right? Because, as you say, it's kind of yeah. a difficult question um, to respond yeah. to. I mean, the, the, the tricky part is we can only hypothesize right now. I feel like we're in the middle of something we don't fully understand. And even sort of in terms of countries, everyone's kind of going through different stages mm-hmm. of the same crisis in terms of how far they've or how long they've been locked down. Um, what that isolation looks like and also the impact on the economy. But I do think that marketers are going to be, they're not just going to be asking the same old stuff. Things like usage and attitude studies, habits and practices, all those basic fundamentals that make up segmentation models or shopper journey models, understanding kind of the share in the market, the size of the market, the way that people are actually um, interacting with brands and products. Those changes are going to cause people to ask like very different questions. And I, I think the questions are going to, so we've always had a lot of questions around how do we tell a story? I think that's one of the main things that marketers talk about, with, yeah. particularly in advertising, like how do we tell the right story? I think that there will be a bigger question around what are the intrinsic values that humans now hold dear And how do those values now manifest themselves in terms of their interaction and their relationship with the other humans in their world? Mm -hmm. One of the things that we know um, in terms of brain response is that our brains are wired to look for stories. We we make meaning of life through stories. Mm -hmm. We make sense of the world through stories. We actually don't like brands. There's a bit at the front of our brain called the orbitofrontal cortex, which actually acts as a human ad blocker. It, it doesn't exist when you're a kid. It's sort of why you believe in the tooth fairy and, and Santa Claus. And Don't tell you know, me that they don't it. exist now. Like, I'm like, <laughs> that's, been, that's been keeping me going during this, like, lockdown. <laughs> but, you know, that bit of the brain that allows us to believe in fairy tales and all those beautiful things, it develops when you're in your late teens to help you assess risk as an adult. And what happens is it also is the bit that doesn't like being sold to. And it's just the bit that just doesn't like brands. So if you have advertising where the brand is shoved in your face right at the start, your brain will tune out. It does not want to be sold to. So your brain is always looking for stories. That's how it works. Now, what we will see is the way we put narrative together ongoing will change. You talked about the Super Bowl earlier. Mm -hmm. So in the US, obviously, it is like the big event with the very long ad breaks and the extensive advertising and all the sort of um, hype around it beforehand. Same as for Christmas, right, in the UK. Yeah. You know, people are actually waiting advert. for the day John Lewis plays yeah. their ad. Exactly. And, and the reason is because those ads, they are all stories, that they are really powerful stories. Now, in this future world that we're going into, not so distant future, when we come out the back of this, 
it's not just going to be about story. It's going to be about emotion, as I said. And one of the other things, so we've, we've done some work with Thinkbox, so the trade body for TV advertising in the UK, uh-huh. where we've looked at the drivers of creative effectiveness. And, and one of them, which is so relevant right now, is our brains really love human interaction. And you, you said the word earlier, it's about connection. I mean, we walk around on this earth all our lives doing what we're looking for love, right? Yeah. We look for human connection and love, whether that's romantic love, friendship, families or whatever else. And, you know, that is going to heavily play out even more than it ever has when we come out the back of this, where we're distanced from people and we can finally be united. But the way it manifests itself will change. And I think that's where a lot of the questions are going to be coming out from. Fascinating sort of insight as to how, um, you know, we can see this playing out in the future. I wonder, like, you know, there's lots of, we've seen it in the UK, we've seen it here in the US, we've seen it in, in lots of other countries in Europe and around the world of, you know, governments sort of appealing people, stay at home, you know, this is lockdown, this is important, these are the things you need to do and, and not do. In a sense, right, they are, they are making advertising pleas, if you like, or marketing pleas um, mm-hmm. to to the world at large. If you apply your kind of neuroscience thinking to that, how do you think that they could be appealing or doing something differently or are they doing it okay in terms of what they're doing? Just curious as to your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that the messages and the calls to action are really critical so they have to come across in the same way you would in any brand um, ad or anything. I think we've seen um, some different examples from the NHS here and also... um, different examples on on certain TV channels. So um, one of the TV channels, Comedy Central, they have a little um, little ad that comes on, which is about staying at home. The ones that I have seen, the ones I would, I would say would have the most impact from the brain's point of view, are the ones where they're showing some form of human interaction and people. So mm-hmm. they have, they've done some brilliant stuff where they've showed like little vignettes or clips of people sort of giving messages from their homes. Um, we've seen that the brain responds really well when you have a direct address to the viewer. Yeah. Because then the viewer feels like they're, the brain of the viewer will feel like it's part of the narrative that it's being told rather than being removed from it. And so I think in those cases, that works really well, showing people in an environment that, um, that is at home for a start, because there's a bit of our brains that we measure, which is, um, we call it the, the metric engagement or personal relevance. It's a part of your brain that's responsible for activating if you see something you relate to. And again, when you show people in that setting that feels familiar and relevant, that will activate the brain. That part of the brain is also something that drives information into memory because we've done some correlation analysis around that. So we know that if you can show something of relevance, it will help drive it into memory. If you make people feel like they're part of the narrative, that will also drive it into memory. So those are the examples where it's, it, I would say it's more effective than just having some text come up on the screen. Now, understandably for advertisers right now, it's quite tough shooting an ad of any description yeah, and getting um, it right, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and I think there's something really authentic about the ones that show the clips, you know, uh, uh, yeah. it's, it's super authentic because we're, I think everybody is very aware that we're all in this. It's not just affecting a social class or a country. No. Uh, we're all in it. You know, this is, this is bigger than all of us. Nature's yeah. taken the planet back, right? Yeah, so, it has, right? You know. yeah, yeah. 
And it's yeah. interesting that like, you've made me think about all of the little video clips that I've been getting, like, you know, on like family sort of like groups that you have and friendship mm-hmm. groups. And, and, they, uh, and the ones that like I've really connected to are the ones that they like, show people um, in their own homes kind of, yeah. you know, doing something lighthearted or trying to sort of like connect to people around what's happening right now to say like, hey, look, you know, we know this is like, you know, from like a head teacher sort of doing her own version of I think I will survive to like lots of other ones that I've seen yeah. that have been like very funny. Um, but also, you know, as you say, they, they kind of bring that kind of emotional um, connection to that. So yeah, um, I'm going to pass that message on to my to my friendship virtual commune group that we have created <laughs> we're testing out whether we could actually live in a commune together when we get old we're realizing that maybe we can't but um that's a, and that's on a virtual basis but like the idea of having um, that sort of connection i think is important i'm going to switch tacks a little bit because you know yeah. i have to give a big shout out because you are a fellow female ceo yeah. Um, they are yeah. not enough of us in the we're world. We're very rare. Right? So we are, we, I like to make a big deal about it when we've got them yep. on the show because, um, you know, hopefully it's an inspiration to those that are um, thinking about it or have never considered, like, taking their management careers uh, um, forward. So you're a really interesting character. Cause <laughs> I like to do my research on my guests, but I, like, <laughs> I can't find too much about, like, your background and stuff like that. Normally I find, like, one little piece of nugget. And I wondered if that was like partly a female trait that we have as like as women, um, that we don't mm-hmm. tend to be all out there and say, "Look at me, who I am and what I am," and lose all the great things that I do. And you, there's loads of stuff um, um, that, that talk about you giving an opinion, and like you've done some great articles and some great um, stories about neuroscience and also about the passions that you have. But tell us a little bit about you, like your background. Like, who are you? Tell me a little bit more. Yeah, I haven't got a wow. funny story about you that I can share with my listeners. So I'd like, I've got to <laughs> ask you the question. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, gosh, I mean, there's not loads out there probably because I ne- I was never really one of those people who did a lot of profiling of myself. I guess I never really, I mean, I riddled with imposter syndrome like so many. So I just didn't necessarily see myself as someone who, I mean, I looked up to those people who did that, right? I didn't yeah. see myself necessarily as one of them. So I, I mean, I'm, I'm 37. I, you know, come from quite a traditional Muslim family. Um, my parents are amazing champions of my choices, which is also quite rare culturally. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, to be fair, it's not always been that way. I'm quite... I sort of went against the grain. I was always quite an outspoken child. I'm a middle child. I like to think of myself as a textbook middle child. <laughs> um, and, you know, I I kind of, I, you know, did a degree in pharmaceutical and cosmetic science, got an internship, went to P&G, massive company. Oh, great so your parents around, would have loved that. You know? Your parents would have loved that. You would have ticked every box. They Coming from an Indian it. culture, yeah. it's like, look, my daughter's like educated. Did a science degree, like, yeah. Yeah, you know, you made it. <laughs> Next thing would be yeah. to get married. So let, let's talk about that. Actually, exactly. I mean, that's, this that's is a, the interesting bit. <laughs> right? This is a good conversation because it isn't just about yeah. women CEOs. It's actually like no. our cultural heritage, you know, oh, of uh, um, also plays yeah. a part, right? And, you know, Massively. I can remember like you probably being about 22 and my dad sitting there thinking like, well, she's going to get married now, isn't she? And I just looked at him like, uh, sorry, no. did I just walk into like, um, like a, a some sort of like, film that I am playing no part in because that's not happening yeah. right now so I mean yeah that's exactly it Do you know I 
I was 18 and I went to university and in I've got two sisters and a brother and um my brother's the youngest and you know we all we all went to uni we're all educated my my dad is a real advocate of being educated because you know he's worked all of his life and you know he watched my grandmother get widowed quite young and he values a woman being able to take care of herself mm-hmm. my mother is an incredibly spiritual woman um, who's incredibly fiery at the same time. She has a real sense of independence. Um, and she's from Pakistan. You know, she moved here when she was 22 when she had mm-hmm. an arranged marriage to my dad. And mm-hmm. they've been happily married for over 40 years, you know, still very much in love. But one of the things that was really interesting was after I finished my degree, I didn't move back home. I went and got my job at P&G and I moved straight into a rented flat in Surrey and my parents were in Hertfordshire. Yeah. And I think that was, you know, it really did go against the grain. There were a, a lot of people who wondered why I did that. Surely I should have moved back home. Surely I should, I can work, but I should be considering marriage. But my parents have always been really supportive of that choice. And eventually I, um, I made the brave decision of getting a mortgage. I think at that point, quite a lot of people were wondering <laughs> if I'd ever get married. Um, you know, my older sister got married, then my younger sister got married. And, and that's always quite a funny conversation. And I'd often go to weddings and people from the mosque would say, don't worry, we're praying for her. Yeah, yeah. I'd um, imagine. Which yeah. is always yeah, yeah. a joy to say, hear. thanks very much. But, yeah, I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, I, I love my career. I'm really passionate and I'm a very curious person. And, you know, I have a lot of hobbies that I enjoy. I do a lot of yoga. That's a lot to help with um, the endometriosis. I, I sort of do. I'm quite an active person. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm currently in isolation. That's changed things a little. But, um, you know, those sorts of things were really important to me. And yeah, they, they, you know, there were a few dis- heated discussions around my choices. But, you know, generally everyone's been really supportive. And then last year, when my predecessor, Heather Andrew, handed the reins over, um, I will never forget the day that she told me um, because I stood like a rabbit in headlights. Yeah. Um, and I knew she had said, you, you, you know, one day this will happen. But, you know, when you just don't believe it's a thing. What did, what, of, what did you like, you know, when you reflected on it, say, 24 hours later? What, what mm. you know, share what was going through your mind, because there are so many people. I mean, and I think particularly women who get find themselves suddenly in that position that that you know go yeah. like oh my god oh my god it's here no, yeah it's like oh. I mean the first thing I thought was I am I even capable um which is which is an interesting question because I look back at it now and I and I know in my bones that if I hadn't have been no one would have given it to me yeah. <laughs> I mean that's the thing I think the people who make those choices, they have the experience and expertise to know and they can tell if you are. But I was like, am I even capable? And the second thing actually was to do with my health because I was diagnosed with endometriosis about 11 or 12 years ago. I've had a couple of surgeries and I kept thinking, what if I get sick? What if I get sick and I have to have another surgery? Now, my Mm -hmm. doctors had told me about a year and a half ago that I should have a hysterectomy mm-hmm. because I also have an additional condition called adenomyosis. And, um, you know, all I kept thinking was if I have to go under the knife mm-hmm. and have to have something done, how am I going to be able to juggle this and that? It's not like someone can just come in and, you know, take over for a few weeks while you're recovering. It, it's not the same as having someone in your team just taking care of projects. Yeah, It's really different. It feels all-consuming. 
And the other thing I kept thinking um, was, how the hell am I going to have a personal life? <laughs> because, you know, I, I, I live on my own. I kind of love my life. It's amazing. But I just thought, you know, I'm going to have to really immerse myself in this. And I, I'm quite a reflective person. And I do have a lot of those sorts of conversations with myself. So I took a beat and really thought about it. But it was interesting because, you know, for people who were looking from the outside in, so many people said, well, of course, this was going to happen. Or we, if anyone was going to do it, it was going to be you. And I was in utter shock because I just could not see myself the way that they saw me. And every time I've spoken to a man who's in a similar position, mm-hmm. it, they, they're very accepting of, of that sort of um, feedback. You know, they'll kind of go, oh, OK, cool. Yeah, that's what everyone thinks. It must be true. Whereas I think women have an inherent tendency to retreat. So what advice would you give, give women? You're what now nearly a year into being in yeah. the CEO role. It's a year on. So you reflect back what, you know, what have you learned about yourself, um, about what it's like to be a CEO? What advice would you yeah, give to I mean, other women? My advice is, you know, accept it, accept what you are, embrace it. And there is no harm in allowing yourself to celebrate that. I think women don't celebrate themselves enough. You know, we, where we're told not to, I mean, the, the idea of celebration of oneself is heavily linked to ego. And I think that women aren't necessarily, you know, they don't feel that they have the entitlement to do that. And it's not ego. It's, no, it's not. You know, you, yeah. we have the right to celebrate because we've earned our place in the world, whether, you know, you've, you've given birth to a child, which is quite possibly one of the biggest things you can do. You mm-hmm. should celebrate becoming a mother. If you are helping a friend with something, celebrate the fact that you are, you have a right to exist in the space that you're in. I think the other thing that I learned was surround yourself with people who will champion you and tell you when you mess it up, mm-hmm. right? Um, I've got a re- um, amazing, amazing friend of mine who's a coach, mm-hmm. and I used to actually be one of his coaching clients um, called David McQueen and his wife, Madeline McQueen, as well. They both are incredible. And, you know, he he gave me some great advice. He said, give yourself permission. Mm-hmm. It's the simplest thing anyone's ever said to me and the most powerful you know, give yourself permission and allow yourself to say, I'm great. He also said, find your advisory board. Yeah. And by that, it was anyone in your life who's worth having on it. So my two best mates, my mum, you know, David and another friend of mine, you know, they're my, that's sort of my people that I go to. And I, you know, I don't ever believe there's anything wrong with asking for help. I, mm-hmm. I talk a lot. I'm a big Brené Brown fan. So I love all things about kind of, embracing vulnerability and it, it's um it's you know relationship to courage or it's actual meaning being courage yep. um and you know you don't always have to know what you're doing <laughs> you know yeah. one of the interesting things for me was somebody asked me oh it must be great being CEO it must be quite hard and I said you know what it's pretty tough and I don't think people talk about that enough but also there is nothing that can prepare you for it necessarily because each person does a version of it themselves. You have and to make I it your own, right? Of, it's, it's your own. It's yeah. not, it's a role that actually, although it, the title has existed, the role of ev- any CEO coming into the role is a new role, right? It's a role yeah, that hasn't been done Yeah, I think that the before. reason that these sort of 
perceptions exist around it is because the people who have made the noise about um, what it's like to be a CEO or here's the rules of being CEO, they've kind of done all their mistake making and they're doing it when they're quite well established. Mm -hmm. Um, But no one talks about that first step, you know, when you're first getting there. Um, how, you know, you're learning a bunch of stuff that you wouldn't necessarily have had to do before. Because even if you've managed large teams and groups, you are peerless all of a sudden, you know. Um, your peers exist outside of your organization. And people are looking to you to set vision. And I, I mean, they're the things that I enjoy the most, actually. I, I really like the autonomy. Um, I also like the relationship of being able to ask people who work for me what they really want. I think that's probably one of the biggest failings is it's not a dictatorial role. It's supposed to be about understanding the people who on the ground are making your business work. What is it that they want and need and what is it that your clients want and need? But um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of richness to it. And anybody who who would ask me, you know, could I do this? Would I be able to do it? I'd say find your people that are going to help you. Mentors are incredibly important. I feel like we should all have them from the word go. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you can do it. Like it's not something that's impossible. I don't feel like I went to CEO school and learned a bunch of stuff. I kind of developed some thinking and 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 I, I believe in emotional intelligence being quite key to it. But yeah, I, I don't feel like it's impossible for so many who would look at it and think it was. I find it fascinating, like, you know, the guests that I've had on the podcast, and, you know, you reflect the views of, of one of my other guests who is a young CEO, I call them young CEOs because you're young. I like to think of myself as young, but seasoned is the reality, right? But, um, <laughs> you know, of the, the, the tack that you guys are taking, which I think is, is heartening for businesses of the future, is to say, hey, look, this is a role that, you know, when you get into it, it's not, you don't need, number one, you don't need to have all the answers. I think that's really refreshing to hear from CEOs. And I, you know, I've heard that from a couple of CEOs on this podcast that come from this view that I think is very different to the view of CEOs in the past. So, you know, I encourage that message to, to get across um, yeah. more. But, but also, it's a, it's a lonely role, right? I mean, how did it feel to begin with, right? Because you, like you, when you first go there, like the people that used to be your colleagues now Mm -hmm. work for you. How did you deal with that? Yeah, that's an interesting one because I, um, I did, I, I did feel, uh, I think that another thing we're told from the outside world is that you have to behave in a certain way when you get the role. (laughs) Yeah. And that is also, I mean, partly true, but also partly crap. Um, and the reason for that is you are, you're, if you're, if you're being promoted within an organization, the people around you will know you as being something else and all of a sudden it will shift. Yeah. What I found was super helpful. And I, I talked about this on, um, I did a, a short video for the BBC on, they have a program called BBC CEO Secrets in the UK. Yeah. Where I talked about transparency about my illness with my team. Mm-hmm. And I think this is really critical to when you are making that shift, how you come across to your colleagues you are still who you are, right? That's not changed. You will start to develop in terms of your professional uh, persona. You will also start to develop in terms of what you learn in yourself as we do in every stage of life. But what's really critical is to not speak to people as though they don't understand you Mm -hmm. because we're all still people. And 
when I did the BBC CEO Secrets thing, what I was talking about was because endometriosis is a chronic pain condition, and I talk about this very openly, um, I had to be really clear to my team because I was, I mean, I work all the hours God gives me and I am. Okay, I'm sending you some tips on mental, I'm sending you some tips on mental health. (laughs) You need to read Excellent. them. I'm very good at giving other people advice, but um, yeah. not, not necessarily following it myself. But like, yeah, you know, it's important to keep that balance. It is. It's so important. And I, when I first started out, I was like constantly on the go. And one of the things that became really apparent was if I wasn't honest and open about what well, if I wasn't managing it myself firstly, mm-hmm. then that would have an impact on my team. But in addition to that, if I wasn't open and honest, I wouldn't be able to earn their respect in any way because they would be able to see through it because people are fairly good at that, you know. And so with particularly one member of my team, she's the research director and we're friends, you know, we're good friends. And the transition, we had a really open conversation Mm -hmm. where we talked about the fact that I was from that point on going to be her boss. And we talked about how you manage those relationships. And I think P&G is a really good training ground for that because mm-hmm. anybody who's worked at P&G will know you work in these massive, massive sites and everyone's everyone's mate, everyone's everyone's other half. You know, there are lots of marriages there. There are lots of relationships, lots of best friendships and people start from graduate level and they stay for years. So right. I learned very early in my career how you separate and how you manage relationships and don't take offence, basically. Yeah. Um, and, and keep some professionalism, but also have a personal touch. And I think that's actually a really good way of just building a, a comfortable team dynamic. And, and I think that sort of shows in the way, in the happiness we have in our office, I think. I like to think so anyway. <laughs> well, they're all listening. I hope they were going to be listening to this podcast, when it, you know, and they'll be saying, yeah, we agree. We agree. We definitely agree. <laughs> so tell us a bit more, like, you know, just before we kind of wrap up, because do you think like this whole, the, the neuro marketing, what do you see as the future for neuro insight going forward? I mean, you run, you know, you run the UK operation. It's a, yeah. it's an organization that has, you know, a significant role to play, I think, in neuro marketing in the future of how we look at consumerism brands and connecting to people and uh, and how businesses you know will, uh, can be sustainable in the future what, what do you see as some of the future sort of outreaches for that going forward I mean I I definitely think that the only way is up for neuromarketing I, I, I you know it's starting its growth I think it's only going to grow and get bigger I think that currently for neuro insight specifically you know we've been working in a, a certain space so we do a lot of advertising research over the last few years, that's shifted into context-related work. So um, in the UK, we published a white paper last year, which was all about the impact of media context, because human beings are now being bombarded with information from every kind of medium that exists. You mm-hmm. know, we've got different platforms and channels, but we've also got different devices. We're also on the go. We've got podcasts in our ears. We've got all sorts of stuff going on. So context became a big part of the conversation over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. I now think that you know in terms of the technology and the way it will move you know we'll get to a point where we can really scale this up in a way that we've not seen and I know as a business that's something that we are definitely looking into we're a really innovative kind of um, team of neuroscientists um, they're based in Australia as part of the group business and they're working on some really cool stuff from the tech side 
I think in general for us, we're going to be moving to larger areas of insight. So we're already doing some work on understanding shopper behavior, but there'll be even more than that because just advertising research isn't enough. I think it will be helped to do very front end design and innovation projects, you know, understanding what the needs are at a much, much like earlier stage. That's something that a lot of businesses do well in terms of disruptive innovation. And I was lucky to work on a couple of those projects myself in the past, client side. But that's something I think neuroscience can add so much value to. There must so be I huge like opportunities in the online space, I would imagine, for you guys. Oh, right? yeah. I mean, so we've done, be... I mean, we do some great work looking at social media. But I think the e-commerce side is a place where we're going to develop quite heavily. I also... You know, I think that currently the COVID-19 situation has meant that people are doing everything online. I mean, yeah. they're literally, they're not just shopping online. They're also working out online. They're having conversations online. They're doing classes and lessons and everything. And I do think that neuromarketing, it will, it will just expand in terms of its reach to different areas. Um, and that growth is going to be absolutely enormous. You know, I have, and I, you know, I feel really lucky actually because there are other businesses and other research companies that, that use um, techniques like EEG, which is, you know, a good technique. But as somebody who was client side, I mean, I was quite picky about my agencies and I, I feel I always said I'd never go agency side. <laughs> the only reason I would do it is if it was someone I would have hired myself when I was a client right. or if it was something that completely changed my life. And I feel like the SST technology does that. I mean, in a way that I can't even articulate you'd have to read my mind to know exactly how I felt well you never know we might have you put it on and then we'll be able to see right like I, I'm not sure that having my subconscious be that conscious is good for anybody particularly when they're locked down at home right now but um that being said um I do think there are fascinating um applications for it you know right? as I said like yeah, I had goosebumps sure. thinking about um some of the places that it could play in a in a much more sort of broader organizational context around culture and oh, leadership yeah, so sure. that may be a conversation we have you on to talk about at another time because it's yeah. a, an area that um i think could be highly interesting to explore but yeah. you know i always ask my um guests they're they're daring too. what's their daring too? because this is about people that dare to either be somebody do something think something um, or just be different, what's your daring to, do you think, as you look back on your life, whether it's work-related, oh, personal-related, what's your daring to moment? I mean, oh, God, there's been quite a few. I think I think one of the big moments for me uh, was a very personal moment, and actually it all happened at the same time last year in March, um, I got told I was becoming CEO, but at the same time, um, I had just publicly after a decade had opened up and talked about endometriosis. Mm-hmm. Um, Rankin, the amazing photographer, he shot, I was lucky enough to have him shoot my portrait for an exhibition that was done on invisible illness. It's beautiful. I've, I've looked it up. Yeah, I, it's um, beautiful. I found that the most difficult thing I have ever done. Mm-hmm. It was so challenging because I was putting myself in a very vulnerable and open position. Mm. I also had a headscarf, no headscarf debacle over that from a cultural point of view. Um, You know, and I think what I really dared to do was to 
I w- it was a really brave moment because I hadn't talked about endometriosis because it impacts fertility and culturally mm-hmm. being known as being someone who ha- may have fertility issues, who's unmarried and in her 30s was not something I wanted to be associated with. And I just yeah. kept my mouth shut for a long time. And I think being brave and daring to open myself up like that and talk about it. Um, I feel like hopefully that has paved the way for others to do the same. Um, I will not stop talking about it. I think it's so important for us to find a cure. But I think that happening, coinciding with the moment when I got told I was going to be a CEO, they were two kind of cultural taboos that I guess I had no idea prior to that that I'd be breaking um, during that year. So 2019 was certainly kind of epic for me. Well, do you know what? That has to be one of the best daring two um, um, shares that we've had. And that's no disrespect to any of my other guests that have been on um, the show. But, um, you know, I think you will have um, opened the windows of light to many, many listeners um, that can relate in their own way, whether it's culturally or from a just a perspective around uh, if you have think something or feel like something different how you've opened the window of light um in how you've described that so um you know hats off really i guess i would say thank you so much for sharing that i think um yeah uh, you've you've like hit that emotional intensity button and my (laughs) you know my encoded subconscious i think there so yeah I, i i really appreciate it now i will say um my other piece of advice is as you said like you know, get out there, be visible, be who you are, yeah. be proud of it. So let's see more of you on social media <laughs> and uh, your brand. Let's get it out there. But if people do want to know more about you, get in contact um, with Neuro Insight. What, how's the best way to reach you? Website, LinkedIn? Yeah, our website is great. You can find me on LinkedIn. So Shazia Ginai, just look me up. Um, but the website's great. It has all the information and a, a place to contact the team. What a cool call episode to a fellow woman sister call it what you want (laughs) like we band together and men guys we expect you to contribute too this is like we're in this together and it's not just COVID-19 we are in this together to to help change the businesses of the future and to be more inclusive and to really live and and show what we can bring to the world and solve some of the big problems so thank you very much if you want to get hold of me you'll know where to get me but I am on Twitter at Rita underscore Trahan and you can find out more about us Thanks for listening. Enjoyed the conversation? Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes of Daring 2. Also, check out our website, dareworldwide.com, for some great resources around business in general, leadership, and how to bring about change. See you next time.